0: Snuff Production. Hello, it is Antoinette Latouf with you. So you'd think the more hours a learner driver gets on the road, the better and safer they'd be, right? Well, it turns out you'd be wrong because new research shows more than 50 hours of driving and logging it doesn't actually equal a reduction in the road death toll.
1: So we found that there was no uh, reduction in the probability of having a, a crash uh, in the years after becoming an unsupervised driver for people who were subject to that, that more stringent regime.
0: For more than a decade, teenagers on the East Coast have been forced to log up to 120 hours of supervised driving, but now it turns out that that number could have stayed at 50. That's our briefing, but first today's headlines with Katrina Blowers. It's Monday the 17th of April. We're going to start
2: seeing campaign ads to say no to the Indigenous voice to Parliament from today. So unlike the Yes campaign, this No campaign will not have any high-profile Indigenous people backing it, but is instead going to focus on quote-unquote everyday Australians. So two groups are leading the cause, Fair Australia, represented by Northern Territory Senator Jacinta Nampajimpa-Price, as well as Recognise a Better Way, led by former ALP National President-turned-Liberal Warren Mundine. The no case will also run ads saying, your boss can't follow you into the polling booth and it's okay to vote no. I don't know about your boss can't follow you into the polling booth. That's, I don't know, that's a little
0: bit condescending, I think. Well, I reckon obviously that's a a direct sort of nod to or acknowledgement of the fact that sporting institutions like the NRL and AFL, those codes have locked in saying, yes, you know, we support the voice. Um, and so I think that's, you know, trying to cheekily say, well, your organization might be for it and publicly state it, but you can, you can go against what the organisation mm. says and also Katrina when they say oh we're having everyday Australians and no high-profile Indigenous people I reckon that's because they can't find any high-profile Indigenous <laughs> people who will back the no vote because polling results have consistently showed that about 80% of Indigenous people support a voice to parliament that's obviously you know that would advise the Aussie government on issues relating to social and economic wellbeing of Indigenous people.
2: If you thought your doctor was bulk billing less, you'd be right. A new report has found only 35% of GPs across the country are offering fully subsidised bulk billing. New South Wales has a total bulk billing rate of 49%. It's 34.6% for Victoria, while it's between 20 and 27% for Queensland, South Australia, WA and the Northern Territory. If you live in Tasmania and the ACT, you're actually the worst off nationally. Under 7% percent of clinics in both jurisdictions offer bulk billing. This is, I guess, what we're experiencing at the coalface, Antoinette. I, I don't think I've had a bulk billing doctor for years
0: now. This research was commissioned by an online health directory It found that 65% of GPs no longer offer bulk billing to patients. That's mine included. And there are actually four federal electorates that have no bulk billing practices at all. This all comes down to the fact that Medicare, which was a, a very proud introduction from the 1980s and has worked for a long time, that it's arguably no longer fit for purpose because gps are saying that what they get reimbursed from the government it's just not enough to cover basic expenses and so what happens then they they pass it on to to patients and the government currently pays less than half of what the australian medical association recommends that doctors should be paid per consultation and i don't know what you think katrina but even myself like sometimes i avoid going to the doctors because i'm like oh is it really worth going and paying whatever $50? Oh, I'll just leave it and and see if this monkey rash continues to spread all over my body.
2: <laughs> monkey rash? <laughs> I definitely do. You know, when it comes down to like say, you know, prescription renewals, I do save it all up for one
0: consultation. Mm. You need to get that monkey rash checked though, Antoinette, stat. <laughs> A vape company is under investigation. The company had been advertising Hubba Bubba flavoured cannabis vape products through TikTok and it doesn't check for ID or require a prescription. The Therapeutic Goods Administration says the regulator will now determine the most appropriate regulatory action. So Australia doesn't allow medical cannabis products to be advertised to the public. But ads were on TikTok for at least a week um, before they were taken down.
2: I know there's a lot of content on TikTok, but my reading of this this morning has been that TikTok only took the ads down when they were notified about it. Uh, so I- I'm not sure what their regulatory position is, given there is so much content on that platform, how much they can be across
0: all mm. of this. That's a worry too. Another interesting development in this story, which I hadn't considered, um, is that Mars, which makes the hubba-bubba chewing gum, it's confirmed that it's uh, considering taking legal action against the vaping company. And Katrina, this seems like a you know, a deliberate attempt to target young people, given the vaping company has these ads on TikTok. Uh, and a third of young Aussies have used an e-cigarette and around 14% currently and regularly vape. First, there was the Bali bonk ban and it seems Indonesian authorities are continuing to crack down on misbehaving tourists in Bali. There's been talk of imposing a tourist tax and Bali's governor is also flagging a proposed ban on tourists using motorbikes. He's also requested Russian and Ukrainian tourists to no longer be allowed to get a visa on arrival in Indonesia. And Katrina, unlike the Bali bonk ban, which seemed to have made a lot of headlines and kind of made us chuckle, but be quite impossible to impose, there has been recent action by Indonesian authorities towards naughty tourists.
2: Yeah, it's interesting, this one. I was in Bali just last week, and it was something that my drivers that we hired in various places, but in particular Semenyak, were talking to us about a lot. Um, a lot of visitors from Russia and Ukraine who've been fleeing the war there and been staying for quite a long time now in Bali. Um, it's not everyone, of course, but there have been a few high-profile influencers who've been posing naked at sacred sites and... And um, that's really offended people (laughs) or, you know, drinking in the streets, wearing not much clothing, which, of course, is offensive. uh, And
0: and many people in Bali have simply had enough. And 620 foreigners, it turns out, have been recently deported uh, because they've been misusing visas, either overstaying or misbehaving while they're there.
2: 30 years on, Collingwood Football Club has apologised for the racist abuse of AFL star Nicky Winmar and his teammate Gilbert McAdam. In April 1993, the St Kilda players were subjected to a torrent of racist abuse by Magpies fans. It actually led to one of the most iconic moments in AFL when Winmar lifted his jumper and pointed to the colour of his skin. Collingwood issued a statement yesterday saying it understands that racism is harmful and has no place in our game and apologises to Nicky Winmar and to Gilbert McAdam for the hurt they experienced playing football. OK, great. But 30 Mm. years on, come on, guys, why did it take so long? Yeah, and really, how much has actually changed? We keep having these conversations over and over again. And just in the last few weeks, we've seen two Fremantle players, a Brisbane Lion Mm. star, a player from Adelaide targeted. Not so much now from abuse from the stands, but it's faceless people, gutless people online.
0: It really hurts my heart. And I do wonder how this apology will land, because in the last couple of years, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, the ABC, apologised to its employees, past and present, and had acknowledged systemic racism in the organisation. And I remember I got the heads up that this apology was happening. You know, I had been subjected to racism in that workplace. And I, I don't know, I felt, I felt seen. It was very emotional. It was validating for it to actually be acknowledged. But then by the same token, other people of colour and other people who were Indigenous thought, well, no, this is not good enough. An apology is not good enough when an organisation continues to be plagued by systemic racism. So I anticipate this will have very mixed reactions. Next up, we look at learner drivers and why spending hours and hours and hours practising with a parent or an instructor doesn't necessarily make you a better driver. So here's a pretty sobering fact for you. More young Aussies die in traffic incidents than from diseases or self-harm. It's actually the biggest killer of those aged under 25. Australia's road toll in the 1990s was far worse than it is now. And there are a whole bunch of laws that were introduced to try and make our roads safer. Some of them worked, some didn't. And new has found that more than doubling L-plate logbook hours for young drivers in places like New South Wales, Queensland and Victoria is not only a waste of time, but it's also a waste of money. Dr Nathan Kettlewell from the University of Technology, Sydney, researches economics and social welfare. Dr Kettlewell, thanks so much for joining us. So when learner log hours went up to 120 hours from 50 hours, the aim was to try and keep young drivers safer on our roads. Did it actually achieve this?
1: Our research suggests that it didn't have that effect. So we found that there was no uh, reduction in the probability of having a, a crash uh, in the years after becoming an unsupervised driver for people who were subject to that that more stringent regime.
0: And so how did you arrive at that conclusion? Because I know at the same time over the past couple of decades, crashes across the board have decreased and, you know, some might be tempted to go, oh, well, that's because we're making learner drivers practice for longer with their parents or with the driving instructor.
1: So in general, it's it's really hard to kind of link these trends to any particular policy because, especially in the space of motor vehicle accidents, because you have a lot of things going on. So you've got, you know, in the state of New South Wales, for example, there's been like lots of changes to the provisional licence regime things like engine restrictions, nighttime passenger restrictions. Uh, you've also got things like changes in speed limits more generally, you've got increased police surveillance. you've also got cars getting safer. So these are all good things and these can all drive trends in that same direction. So what we try to do is is really tease out the specific effect or the causal effect of that law change. So people who would have turned 16 uh, just before, the reform changed to people who turned 16 just after. And so people in the first group, they could get their license right before that date and they only had to do 50 hours. People in the second group, they couldn't avoid the new regime and so Uh they were forced to do 120 hours. And so you've got this discontinuity at a particular birth date and there's no reason to think that people who are born sort of one or two days apart are systematically different from each other. Um, so we we're able to kind of isolate that effect and and really cleanly estimate the impact of that policy change. Were you surprised by those findings? So I wasn't terribly surprised. Um, it, to, to be honest, it was it was sort of hard to know what to expect because there wasn't much research in this space to exist mm-hmm. with. Uh, so you know, on the one hand, uh, I think it it kind of makes sense that you know people learn a lot initially and then it becomes really hard to learn. Um, Mm. And I think that's like a true experience in in so many settings. And so it kind of makes sense that there would be, you know, some level of practice where additional practice really doesn't make a a big impact. We don't know where that is, but, but that makes sense.
0: Do you think there's a valid reason for policymakers to review the logbook hours? I mean, think of the poor parents having to spend all of those additional hours, all the money spent on paying driving schools.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think it's certainly worth considering. Um, as you say, it's, it's, it's not costless and probably those costs are, are unequally distributed as well. They're probably higher in like single parent families or, you know, for those who really don't have access to a car or to a supervising driver. And so our research suggests that, you know, that that increase from 50 to 120, it, it really had no effect. And we have a very big sample and so, when we say that, we can say it with quite a lot of confidence. What was I mean, your sample? Uh, so we had about 160,000 people um, wow. in our kind of estimation sample, but essentially we had access to the entire universe of New South Wales drivers. So we're using administrative uh, data. We had access to all of the all of the drivers and all of the accidents that that are recorded in the accident database. So those are accidents where a police needs to attend because. A car needed to be towed Mm. away or somebody was injured. So let's talk about some of the factors
0: that are making young people unsafe on our roads. How much does a smartphone distraction play a role or alcohol, speeding, or or does it come down to the fact that just when you're younger, you are more of a risk taker, that there's, there's links to the frontal lobe not being developed enough yet?
1: I think it's all of those things. I think like those kind of distracting factors are obviously implicated in a lot of accidents, uh, whether that's like a bigger issue for young drivers is certainly an important thing to look at. Uh, Young drivers tend to crash a lot more uh, in the the short term after they get their license. And so that suggests there's obviously an experience, like a learning effect. So young drivers are always going to be more at risk because they have less driving experience. and, And that's just always going to be a challenge. Um, of course, then you've got other like pressures for young drivers like pure effects, like having um, other people in the car that that are probably like less of an issue for for older people, you know, people like, you know, young people encouraging other young people to do risky things, for example.
0: So what do you make of the Queensland Government's proposal for drivers to have a bit of a refresher course or sit that driver's test again every time they renew their licence? Is that likely to be more effective in keeping roads safe?
1: If any government wants to do something like that, like kind of add an additional like layer or hurdle, these things are just tested. So whether that's a good thing, I, I, you know, I don't know because I haven't seen any evidence to suggest that making, you know, drivers resit that exam is, is worthwhile. You can trial that reform, you know, and see if it actually does lead to an improvement in safety. And I think that that should be sort of proven before you like roll them out. So
0: based on your study and the status quo, new study suggesting that the status quo isn't necessarily keeping people safer, what do you think policymakers should consider if they
1: were to change things? The main thing that I I guess I would urge policymakers to consider is, you know, to affect new policy based on evidence. So I think that's kind of one of the, the big contributions of our study is that, you know, we really worked hard to identify the effect of this policy change whilst isolating it from other things that are going on. So we can look at, like, trends in motor vehicle accidents, and we can also think about the fact that there's been a whole bunch of policy changes in the last, like, 20 years, but linking those things in a, in a causal way, you know, one causing the other is actually a really hard thing to do. You know, our study is an example of, of trying to achieve that. There's a lot of research out of the U.S. that something known as graduated driver licensing. So this is the licensing system that we have in New South Wales and a lot of states is an effective way to reduce motor vehicle accidents. So this system where we, you know, we have a learner period, we have a provisional period and we have maybe another provisional period. And in each period we go through additional testing. We have restrictions. Those restrictions are are kind of wound down. um, And by the end of it, you know, you can drive fully, you know, without restrictions and and you've kind of been nurtured up to that point. Um, mm. So there's a lot of evidence that that works, but we don't really know what parts of it works.
0: So do you think then we need more research on the graduated provisional license period, which I remember from when I first got my license, I think I was the first cohort where it went from one year to three years of being a provisional driver going from in New South Wales from Green plates to red plates, or the other way around. Are you convinced by the evidence that that works? Or do you think the whole kind of process um, is difficult to differentiate what is effective and what
1: perhaps isn't? I think broadly, there's clearly parts of that process that, that must be working, like because we can see it. As I said, a lot of this evidence comes from the US. So if we look at sort of states that have stricter requirements, you know, we generally see like lower crash rates um, and that happens after those states take on those requirements and so it suggests to me that there's something there and certainly like you know we can see that the crash rate for young drivers in in new south wales has gone down a lot like in the last couple of decades and that's a really good thing it's hard to know what to attribute that to like you know for example when you go from a uh, red peas to, to green peas in, in new south wales and you have to do a, a computerized hazard perception test i think that's what i had to do if you fail that, you, you know, there's a, there's a cost. Does that reduce crashes? I, I don't know. Um, uh. and, I, and I doubt that really anyone does um, because I think a lot of these things are just, they're hard to evaluate and they're just not routinely evaluated.
0: That was Dr. Nathan Kettlewell from the University of Technology, Sydney. I can just hear the muffled screams of parents as they swear into a pillow thinking about the 70 additional hours they did supervising learner drivers. Or probably those who really, really struggled to afford doing those extra practice hours. Maybe they didn't have car access or had to pay for lessons, which, by the way, cost anywhere between $60 to $90 per hour. No doubt they're pretty frustrated by this research. And look, I know it's not a trivial matter. I know keeping roads safe and young people from dying. Yep, these are are serious issues and we should be throwing a lot of things at it. But as Dr Kettlewell says, it should be evidence-based and not impact people differently. And over the past five years, the death toll has fluctuated around the country, not back to those really horrible 1990s level, but still not great. Uh, We have around 1,200 people killed on our roads. So, it is probably a good time to rethink what is and isn't working and only have policies in place that are evidence based.
1: Listener.